That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Well, Donald Trump is out there selling his uh, tax scam. And, you know, it's symptomatic of so many things in the United States. there's, There's this... What's the word? There... There, there is this, this struggle among TV commentators, and, and, and I, I even heard this on NPR this morning, uh, among analysts and, and news people, this struggle to explain why Americans are so upset with politicians. Why is it the Congress has a 15% approval rating? Why is it that the Republican Party has like a 25% approval rating? The Democratic Party's, you know, it's higher than the Republicans, but it's still less than 50%. Why, I believe. Why is that? And everybody's sitting around, you know, just kind of torturing the language, trying to say, you know, there's this, uh, people are unhappy. And, you know, that explains, you know, why Judge Moore was elected down in Alabama. And that explains why Donald Trump became president. And that explains the Bernie phenomena. And I think it does actually explain all those things, that people are really upset with politics. And they're really upset with politicians, but it doesn't explain why. And I think it's really important to talk about the why. The why is something that you're not going to hear discussed in any of the elite media. Because they're part of the why. But the reason why people are upset is really encapsulated well in this headline from a Common Dream story from the 27th of September uh, published, uh, publishing common dreams written by Jake Johnson. Just the headline says the whole thing. Consumer survey shows two thirds of Americans oppose the FCC's plan to destroy free and open internet. Two thirds of Americans want to keep net neutrality. The vast majority of Americans think that corporate taxes should go up, not down. The vast majority of Americans think that Wealth inequality is a problem. The vast majority of Americans think that rich people should be paying higher taxes, not lower taxes. The vast majority of Americans, uh, you can just go through the list. They think that the air and the water should be protected by the EPA, while Scott Pruitt is taking apart the EPA. They think our our public lands should be protected by the Department of Interior, while Ryan Zinke is trying to sell them off to mining and coal and, and drilling interests. The vast majority of Americans believe that everybody should have access to health care as a right. None of these things are being put into law, right? None of the things that the vast majority of Americans want are being legislated. In fact, if anything, we're getting quite literally the exact opposite. The majority of Americans want net neutrality. Trump says no net neutrality. He puts Ajit Pai in there in charge of the FCC, and he's just going to wreck it. The vast majority of Americans want us to be protected from banksters. You know, the, 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 um, uh, the, the, uh, the legislation that was passed, um, oh, geez, it was two years ago, three, no, no, this was at the end of the Trump, or toward the end of the Obama administration, that, that would protect us from Wall Street. Um, you know, the Trump administration is trying to 
uh, defenestrate it, to throw it out the window. The, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, the CFPB. Um, the vast majority of Americans would like to be protected from the banks. In fact, the CFPB has recovered literally tens of billions of dollars from banksters and returned it to consumers, people like you and me, that was fraudulently taken from us. We want this. But what are the Republicans doing? They're trying to destroy it. I would, the, what it all boils down to, the why is very simple. The why is very, very simple. And this is the study that Page and Gillens came out with from, uh, I think it was Northwestern University back, what, three years ago, thereabouts. We talked about it on this program at some length. We had one of them on, one of the two scientists who did this study. And what they found was that what the top 1%, well, actually what the top 5% want, has a measurable and relatively high probability of being made into law. I don't recall the percentage. I think it was around 80%. But they, you know, they, they have what the, what the top five, maybe the top 10% even, what the top, you know, the marginal top wants gets made into law. But what the bottom 90% of Americans want, the probability of that being made into law is equivalent to, uh, statistically equivalent to random noise. In other words, we're all just being completely ignored. We're getting, you know, Trump is out there going quack, 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 quack. You know, he's, 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 he's saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to cut middle class taxes. And we're going to, you know, and we're going to protect the air. And, I, you know, Bush tried this with this Clean Skies Initiative, a, a clean and, and, you know, Healthy Forests Initiative, which was just nonsense. I mean, they, they were just marketing slogans. They were lies. This Healthy Forest Initiative was to cut down more trees and not in a healthy way. I mean, if you want healthy forests, fine, you know, log them, log them selectively. Louise and I used to have 400 acres in, in Vermont, and we had a guy with a, with a horse come in and, and log it to, to, to make the, the forest healthy. Yeah, you, you, know, you can manage a forest, but clear cutting? I mean, that was what Trump, that, that was what Bush was proposing. And now, of course, is this tax thing. Bruce Bartlett was the guy in the Reagan administration who helped write, when he was working with Jack Kemp, helped write the Bush tax cuts. Bruce Bartlett. And he's got a piece in today's Washington Post. And I'm just going to share a few quotes from it with you. Four decades ago, he writes, while working for Jack Kemp, Republican in New York, I had a hand in creating the Republican tax myth. Of course, it didn't seem like a myth at that time. And then he goes through and he lays out what the myth is, which is basically if you cut taxes, the economy booms. And then he says, in reality, there is no evidence that a tax cut now would spur growth. And then he goes back to the 80s. He says the prosperity of the 80s is overrated in the Republican mind. In fact, aggregate real gross domestic product growth was higher in the 70s, 37% versus 35% than, than in the 80s. Moreover, he said GOP tax mythology all, uh, usually leaves out really what is the biggest thing, and that's the Federal Reserve. I mean, I, I keep telling you, the, why is the stock market going up? Because the Fed's keeping the uh, interest rates at 2% and below. What does that mean? It means the companies can borrow money and use that money to buy back their own stock and raise, jack up their stock prices. We're, we're, in, a, in, a, we're in a bubble market that's driven by the Fed. Well, the Fed can also kill markets. And what all these Republicans forget was that when Ronald Reagan became president, the Fed had set the Fed fund rate, the rate at which banks, the Fed will loan, loan to banks or banks loan to each other overnight, at 19%. Now, that really slows down an economy. And the whole point was to slow down inflation, which was the result of the, of the Arab uh, oil boycott of uh, just, you know, the previous years of the 70s. But, but they, you know, the Fed was trying to kill inflation and they did it by raising interest rates to 19%. Well, it, by November of 1982, so we're, you know, the second into the uh, tail end of the second year of Reagan's administration, the Fed dropped the, dropped the federal fund rate from 19% to 9%. I mean, if the Fed today cut the interest rates in half, you'd see a huge stimulus. Of course. 
It's a bubble-driven stimulus, but it's a stimulus. And then he says, of course, and then there was also the bounce back from the recession. And also, he says, Reagan's defense buildup and highway construction programs greatly increased the federal government's purchase of goods and services. This, writes Bruce Bartlett, is textbook Keynesian economics. He said there is no evidence. Now, keep in mind, this is the guy who wrote Reagan's policies. Quote, there is no evidence showing a boost in growth from the 1986 act. The economy remained on the same track with huge stock market crashes. 1987's Black Monday, 1989's Friday the 13th mini crash, and a recession beginning in 1900, and real wages fell. Strenuous efforts by economists to find any growth effect from the 1986 act have failed to find much. This is Bruce Bartlett. This is the guy who wrote Reagan's tax plans, saying, come on, it's nonsense. In addition to that, actually, I'll put that over there. In addition to that, here's what, here's what the, you know, is in the news right now. Bloomberg. I'll just read you the headlines. Bloomberg. GOP tax plan has large tax breaks for highest earners. USA Today. Trump's tax plan could actually benefit wealthy people like him. Uh, U.S. Today editorial. Many Trump voters will get zero from Republican tax framework. New York Times. Trump tax plan benefits wealthy, including Trump. Axios. Trump's skeptical of his own plan. NBC News. GOP rhetoric on new tax plan doesn't match reality. NBC News. Tax plan impact a mystery for the middle class, but not for Trump. CNBC. GOP tax plan is the great con. Uh, They're quoting Richard Trumka. New York Times, Trump misleads on who benefits from tax plan. Washington Post, Trump's spin doesn't match his tax plan. Business Insider, the double standard deduction in the GOTP tax plan is a lie. In in other words, actually, you know, yes, he wants to raise the the standard deduction, but he's doing away with individual deductions. So actually, you know, a family of two, a family of four, you know, a married couple with two kids earning $45,000 a year or less will actually be paying more taxes under this plan. LA Times, here's why tax, uh, Trump's tax plan will hit Californians especially hard. LA Times, don't buy the spin. The new tax plan is a huge giveaway to the rich. See, it's, this, is, this is what's been going on basically ever since the Reagan revolution, is politicians come to Washington, D.C., and they, they figure out, well, they're told what the billionaires want, and they have to come up with a way of doing it that's acceptable to the, to, the, uh, to the suckers who watch Fox News. And so, you know, they come up with these elaborate lies, you know, the laugher curve and, and uh, you know, the, the uh, supply side economics and trickle down, th- you know, it's just, they're just elaborate lies. And sometimes they're not even elaborate. Oh, there's no such thing as global warming. Well, the majority of Americans now believe that the intensity of hurricanes is being fueled by global warming, which, by the way, is true. But the Republicans are still lying to us. This is why our politics is broken, because the Supreme Court has made law and struck down law in a way that has basically turned control of our political system over to a small group of billionaires. This is the Tom Hartman Program. A small group of billionaires that Clarence Thomas and Antonin Scalia every year went and visited and hung out with and spoke to. And now Neil Gorsuch is doing the same. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So, you know, I I started this rant about how, you know, the majority of Americans want net neutrality. We're going to lose net neutrality if, if, you know, Trump and Ajit Pai and all this, you know, if they have their way. Trump is, and, and the, whole, the whole politics is broken thing is because our politicians are not doing what we want. And they're not doing what we want because they're not listening to us. They're listening to the donor class. And the donor class has the power that it has because the Supreme Court gave it that power. That's it in a nutshell. So Trump is out there saying, oh, we need to stimulate the economy, right? And he's, he's echoing the, the lies that Reagan told, although I think that probably Reagan believed them. And Bruce Bartlett, for that matter, probably believed them in the, in the 1980s, that if we cut taxes, we would stimulate economic growth. I mean, history now clearly demonstrates that not only is that not the case, but the opposite is the case. That the, if, you want a, if, the, if you, the goal of your country slash economy 
is to have a strong middle class. There is a, a clear, demonstrable, measurable, graphable relationship between top tax rates on the very wealthy and whether or not the middle class is healthy. The higher the tax rates on the rich, the stronger the middle class. The lower the tax rates on the rich, the weaker the middle class or the smaller the middle class becomes and the larger the class of the working poor and the poor become. It is just that simple. It's absolute truth. It's easily demonstrated. And when you look around the world, you look at the countries where oligarchs are erupting and you've got conspicuous wealth next door to, to, to mind-numbing slums, those are places with very low tax rates for their very wealthy. And then when you look around the world at places where there's a very strong and vital middle class, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Germany, France, what do you have? You have very high taxes on the very rich and on corporations. Trump is trying to hustle this thing. Now, what are the Europeans doing? Mario Draghi is the uh, chair or the president. Yeah, he's the president of the European Central Bank, the ECB. So he's, he, you know, he's like Janet Yellen for Europe. Probably the most well-informed economist or a guy in charge of the economy in the world. And he just, and this is the front story of the Financial Times today. He just recommended that the unions in Europe ask this year for a 6% wage increase because wage, raising wages stimulates the economy. He's not talking about tax cuts. He's talking about wage increases. This is a guy who's talking You reality. are listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Here, instead of reality, all we get is this BS shoveled at us from our politicians straight through the think tanks funded by the billionaire. Hey, Tom Hartman here. I love shaving with Harry's because I get a smooth, close shave, just the way a shave should be. For decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of their customers. So Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were fed up with getting ripped off, started Harry's to fix shaving. Harry's knew that there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. By taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers their blades at half the price, just $2 a blade compared to the $4 or more you'll pay at the drugstore. Harry's razors include everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. A weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their shave set for free. You heard that right, free. Just cover the shipping when you sign up. Plus, as a special offer to fans of our program, go to harrys.com right now and enter the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout to get a post-shave balm for free. That's harrys.com, code TOM. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. The, the, the situation in Puerto Rico is really, really bad. And, you know, they're, they're, we're not ever reminded of it because it happened to or, uh, you know, on the watch of a Republican president. But about 2,000 people died in Hurricane Katrina, in large part because of the failure of appropriate response by the Bush administration. I'm guessing there's going to be more than that who die in Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And I mean, so far it's, it's, you know, in the thirties, I think, but I mean, literally 30 people, which is really good. And, and let's hope it doesn't go up from that, but we're just starting to get a sense of how bad things are. And now comes the news that the Trump administration is saying, if you, if you leave the island, if, you, if you're an evacuee, you leave the island, even on a military plane, you know, even if the government evacuates you, you owe the government an amount of money equal to the full fare price of a commercial airplane ticket. And they are keeping your passport until you pay it back. These are impoverished Puerto Ricans who are American citizens. I mean, it's just, it, 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 it's just insane what's going on. It's just absolutely insane. Scott in Alameda, California. Hey, Scott, what's on your mind? 
Okay, so one of the things that um, I'm watching for is the people to really start breaking this tax thing down so they can tell their friends about it, so mm-hmm. discuss it, and be knowledgeable about it. And I heard a really good breakdown last night, and there's really three areas. The 8%, the lowest tax rate, goes up to 12%. Right. It's actually, I think it's currently 10, but yeah, it goes up to 12. Okay, so it goes up to 12. 39.6, which I think is the highest, goes down. So the to 35. Highest, right. the, the most wealthy people get a cut. Yep. The standard deduction doubles, and this is the, the little bait for the middle class. It okay. doubles from, for a first person like myself, which is a family of three um, um, to filing jointly, it goes from 12700 to 25400 but the personal exemption goes away. Right. So that would that would be um, so if I got this right. So you can no longer deduct yourself and your wife, basically. Yeah. So, but then they roll back in a thousand dollar tax credit, um, um, which will which will eventually sunset when your when your child moves out. Right. So, you know, the the middle class is going to going to be left with crumbs once again. Right. If you're making uh, less than $50,000 and you have more than one child, you will probably pay actually more in federal income taxes. Yeah. So people, <laughs> people need to remember that, that they're, that they're slamming the, the, the lowest bracket. Uh, they're rewarding the highest bracket. And we've seen what type of people, not, not everybody, but these, these, these people in this highest bracket are just the most god-awful people in the world. Well, not all and of them, but, gonna, but I know, I know, there you know, are a few. Probably, yeah, but you, you, yeah. you understand what I'm saying. They're, they're just showing their, their, their true you know, stripes every single day, yep. and you're going to reward these people, and they're destroying everything? Yep. And, and that's Anyways. the thing. I mean, the, again, the vast majority of Americans are not on board with this. Now, there's going to be this enormous sales pitch. And everybody's going to say, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it happened, you know, they, 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 you know they, they, if they pass this, which is still, I mean, the legislation literally has not yet been written. What we have is a nine-page outline, which is expanded from the original one-page outline, you'll recall, you know, from five, six months ago. And, right. and, but, you know, it's, it's clearly going to benefit the Mnuchins of the world, the, the, the cones of the world, you know, the, the, the economic advisors to Trump, the Trumps of the world. It's clearly going to benefit them, um, eliminating the estate tax in particular, and, and eliminating the alternative I mean, minimum get, tax. Get, you know, I, I could I could understand raising the alternative minimum tax so it doesn't hit people who are making in the in the low you know in, in 100 to 150 or thereabouts who live in high high cost cities. You know, if you're living in downtown San Francisco or something, you know, I I could get you know changing that slightly. But, you know, in 2005, the one year for which we have a, a short form tax return or, or what the front front page of Donald Trump's tax returns, he paid thirty five million dollars in taxes and 30 million of it was the alternative minimum tax. So, of course, he wants to get rid of the alternative minimum tax because it's the tax. You know, if you're if particularly if you're a real estate developer and you've got all these ways to to and you're and you're doing pass through income. And by the way, the pass through income, which is how Trump gets his money, it's how, you know, a lot of business owners, uh, privately held businesses, companies that are not publicly traded, how a lot of business owners get their money. Pass-through income is going to go from the personal income tax rate, which is where it's at right now, 39.6%, it's going to go down to 25%. So it's like, you know, and and they're saying this is for small businesses. Well, small businesses, uh, you know, the, the there are some huge corporations that are pass-through entities. And, you know, and the, the Trump organization is one of them. And that's not even, you know, one of the really huge ones. So, yeah, this is this is this is nothing more than than the payback to the donor class for getting the Republicans elected. It's that simple. And the question in my mind is, if the Republicans cannot pass this thing, is the donor class going to say, ah, screw it. We're going to go back to the you know pre-1980s, stop being politically active, go back to running our businesses and being good citizens, or are they going to double down on the crazy and actually try to turn the United States into a third world country, full bore, flat out, you know, right over the screaming objection of Americans? And if they do that, you think that the Tea Party and the Bernie phenomena and the the, the whole thing on both left and right people saying, and, you know, Antifa and everything else, people saying, hey, you know, enough. It's not, the system doesn't work. The system is corrupt. The system is broken. 
we're in the streets, we're, we're, we're fighting back. You, you think you've seen some, some upsets or some uproar so far? It will be unbelievable, in, in my opinion. So not on, it'll, it'll be substantial. So that's, that's what I'm seeing. Scott, excellent points all. Thank you for the call. Anne in Littlefield, Texas. Hey, Anne, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. First of all, I want to thank you for your excellent work. Thank you. I don't know how I would keep my sanity if it weren't for free speech TV. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, it's really difficult to understand people voting against their own best interests. And they will staunchly defend that. Mm-hmm. Maybe just because they don't want to admit they were fooled, for lack of a better word. Could be. Um, you know, the, the, the problem is the, this alternative reality, this bizarro world, has its own internal structure, its own internal mythology, as Bruce Bartlett pointed out in his op-ed in yeah. today's yeah. Washington Post. And it is continuously, daily, spoon-fed to people who watch Fox so-called news and listen to right-wing hate radio. It's just, it's constantly there. And so the consequence of that is, is that, you know, people aren't, you know, they're, they're not only not going to admit that they've been played as suckers, they don't even realize it, right? They, they no. think they're doing the right thing. They think that they're loyal, patriotic Americans, you know, and, and that, you know, they just can't figure out why those, why those evil liberals would want to tax rich people, you know, for example, it's, it's, it's just, it's very, it's very strange. Um, I, I'm, um, I'm one of the probably maybe half a dozen progressive thinking people in my small rural town. Oh my goodness. And <laughs> it seems that way. Um, but if you, for example, of, if you go on Facebook and try to point a fact out to them, they attack with a passion. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And mostly the things I post are links to the actual bill. Right, right. But I think that's too much for some people. Either they're too timid. What has happened is that, these, the is that these yeah. billionaires and this right-wing media that they control, by and large, have balkanized mm-hmm. the United States. They have... They have they're setting up the next civil war. And I, I don't mean that literally as a war, like, you know, we're shooting at each oh, other, but, but it's, it's at the level of culture, at the level of politics, we are in the midst of a civil war. This country is tearing itself apart. And what is driving the entire process is money from a, from, you know, a few hundred billionaires and, and multimillionaires and some very, very large corporations that, that help make them rich. And it's really just that simple. And, and you know, we need to fix that. And, and it's going to be very, very hard to do as long as the Supreme Court keeps saying that money is free speech and that corporations are people. And I have to move along. But thank you for the call and keep up your Facebook activism. Maybe you should start a, a drinking liberally or eating liberally group there in uh, Littlefield, Texas, and, you know, get together with your the other six progressives every week or every once a month or something. And I wish you well. Thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, MJ in Asheville, North Carolina. Hey, MJ, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Well, I was tuning in about the time that you were talking about the vast majority of Americans and so many issues on which we do all agree on health care, on education, on net neutrality. And I'm remembering that a lot of the time you remind us that, that the vast majority of Americans don't know what to do to fix it, don't know what to do to get money out of politics, don't know what to do to change the fact that our politicians are not listening to us. And what you remind us to do on a regular basis is to participate in the process. Um, we were raised to think, at least I was raised, to believe that I was supposed to vote, that that was my civic duty. And I was raised to believe, and I think most of us were raised to believe, that we should educate ourselves on the candidates and the issues that we were about to vote on. Uh, too many of us don't vote. Fewer of us actually educate ourselves, but what we weren't raised to do was to actually take part in preserving and 
in this case, now we need to restore our democracy. We weren't taught that we need to get on the school board or join the ACLU or participate in party politics at the local level or call our Congress people on a regular basis. Right. And I think we are, as a, as a citizenry, being called upon to do that now. If we want to see a difference, we need to take that extra time where we, you know, at least most of us were raised to think that we need to volunteer in the community. And a lot of that volunteerism needs to go into participating at the grassroots level in some way. Yeah, it's, um, it's time for some serious citizen involvement. And I think it's happening. I, I really do. It, and, well, it is. And I see that in my community. I, I live mostly in Key West, Florida, and we have a huge women's march movement. They keep us appraised and apprised of what's going on in the community. And, and by the way, thank you so much for your education of our on progressive issues. I don't know what I would do without you. Um, but yes, I do see change. I think that's the silver lining to the Trump presidency mm-hmm. is that people are standing up and going, oh, no, you don't. Yep. I'll have to do something now. Yep. So I see that as a silver lining and I love what you do. And I thank you so much. Thank you, MJ. Thank you very much. And thanks for your kind words. Um, and spot on. Yeah, we've got to get involved. We've got to actually become the politicians. Mark, or at least become the party. Mark in Chicago. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I really, uh, really appreciate your show. Um, thank you. What I found really interesting is that I had to... Um, <clears throat> do some searches for articles to find out what the voter turnout in Alabama was, mm-hmm. which was only 14%. Right. And it seems pretty persuasive, pervasive that the conversation about voter turnout doesn't happen that much, which is you know, convenient for the establishment. Yeah, in other words, 7% but, of Alabamans sent, if I'm using the word right, uh, sent Roy Moore to the, uh, to the election for the Senate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm calling in Illinois, and we have a very unpopular Republican governor and a very unpopular Democratic mayor, but they're both members of the 1%. And, you know, Rahm Emanuel, when he ran, he, he used money to run so many TV ads that he created a sense of inevitability and voter turnout was like a little over 30%. Um, but that, what brings to mind is that, that while the, the money is definitely a strategic tool, it's psychological warfare. The money isn't literally keeping people from voting, but it's creating a psychological environment where either they, people feel it's an inevitability or and what I read about in Alabama is that the, the money was used for TV advertising and that Strange and more were so heinously negative against each other that a lot of people are like, well, I'm not going to vote. Hmm. So it, it seems to me that, that it does give an avenue for organizing and you, you're a Michigander, so you probably remember the bottle bill back in the 70s, oh, yeah. which was tons of money was spent by the bottling industry, the, 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 you know, the, the beer and wine and soft drink industry against the bottle bill. But I think it was uh, the Public Interest Research Group of Michigan, which spearheaded the, the movement to just get people out and vote. Um, and it worked. It's a very different environment now. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, with TV but see, back then, the also, the media was willing to cover progressive initiatives. And they were willing to talk about things honestly rather than, you know, I mean, what 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 would happen today with the, the bottle bill in Michigan thing back in the 70s is that uh, the, the bottling companies would just start buying massive ad buys on radio and TV. And all of a sudden there would be no more coverage in the news of what was going on with the bottle bill. I was working in news in the 70s in Michigan, you know, right up to 1978. I was working at WITL and um and, and, and doing news. And, and, you know, we co- I don't specifically remember exactly when the bottle bill was or even if we covered it when I was doing the news. But that's basically what we did is, you know, we covered what is it that people need to know about what is going on in the world? What is the news? And now it's, you know, what's going to get the what, what's the best clickbait, basically? You know, what is going to get people to listen? What is going to get people outraged? What is going to get people what is going to make money for our advertisers? That's that's the bottom line. And, you know, in, in commercial radio and television these days and the, that that sense of of obligation, of patriotism, of 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 uh, even a, a professional sense of journalism has been largely lost. And, yeah. uh, you know, you see it in this town. I mean, I, I go to some of these events here in Washington, D.C., where there's a bunch of journalists, a bunch of politicians and everybody standing around in tuxedos and 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 fancy you know clothes and whatnot drinking their champagne and and laughing with each other and and it's like really i mean it's 
Anyway, it's, <laughs> it's enough. Mark, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. A very disturbing story in The Guardian today. By, uh, it, it, it's actually, in fact, I'm going to have to get to The Guardian website and get the, get the author for this because for some reason it didn't print. Um, but the, the uh, story is about teachers. Teachers. Here it is, outside in America. Facing poverty. This is by Alistair Gear, Gee, excuse me, in San Francisco. Facing poverty, academics turn to sex work and sleeping in cars. So last month, the Republicans told us that we couldn't afford to have health care for everybody in America. This month, they're telling us that we've got trillions of dollars to give to rich people and corporations and tax breaks. And all through the whole process, they're saying, oh, we really can't fund our schools. The story starts out with the story of a university teacher. You know, there's nothing she would rather do than teach. But after supplementing her career with tutoring and proofreading, the university lecturer decided to go to remarkable lengths and make her career financially viable. She first opted for her side gig. This is being a sex worker. During a particularly rough patch several years ago, when her course load was suddenly cut in half and her income plunged, putting her on the brink of eviction. In my mind, I was like, okay, I've had one night stands. How bad can it be? And it really wasn't all that bad, she said. The wry but weary sounding middle-aged woman who lives in a large U.S. city and asked to remain anonymous to protect her reputation is an adjunct instructor, meaning she's not a full-time faculty member at any one institution and strings together a living by teaching individual courses, in her case, at multiple colleges. She said, I feel committed to being a person who's there to help millennials, the next generation, go on to become critical thinkers. And I'm really good at it. And I really like it. And it's heartbreaking to me that it doesn't pay what I feel it should. A quarter of part-time college academics are said to be enrolled in public assistance programs such as Medicaid. A quarter. They resort to food banks and goodwill. There's even an adjunct's cookbook that shows how to turn items like beef scrap, chicken bones, and orange peel into meals. The Guardian has spoken to several academics who are literally either living on the streets or teetering on the edge of losing stable housing, including an adjunct living in a shack north of Miami and another sleeping in her car in Silicon Valley. The adjunct who turned to sex work Estimates she puts in 60 hours a week as a teacher, but she struggles to make ends meet after paying $1,500 in monthly rent and with student loans that, including interest, amount to a few hundred thousand dollars. This is nuts. Basically, going into the teaching profession, you know, it's 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 like yesterday we we had this uh, I had this debate with with. Uh, our, our, you know, Charles Sauer, our libertarian acquaintance, uh, about airline pilots. And his whole thing was, you know, well, you need to cut the standards because the airlines are experiencing a pilot shortage. Well, the airlines are experiencing a pilot shortage because they no longer pay decent wages. I mean, who wants to, who wants to go $100,000 in debt to, to get a commercial license and, and all the ratings associated with it for a job that pays $35,000 a year? Which is not, to, you know, which is not to say it's a terrible pay, but it's it's certainly, I mean, that's that's not something that somebody goes to college for for years for and 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 spends. I mean, you know, it takes years to be, become a, a a commercial pilot, and and literally holds the lives of hundreds of people in their in their in their hands every single day. And these are our teachers. Our teachers are not making. Now, yeah, I know there are some some places where teachers make a lot of, you know, make a good living. There are some places where the teachers unions are still strong. They're still, you know, they're still under siege. And there are some universities that pay well. You're going to, you know, there, there will be right wingers who will probably call into the show and say, oh, well, let me tell you how much the, 
you know, so-and-so makes it and we're teaching at the such-and-such school in New York City. It's a hundred grand a year. What are you talking about? Well, yeah, you know, there's still some remnants of good jobs out there. There was another article this morning in The Guardian, and I, did, I didn't print this one out. I'll, I'll just do it from memory here, <clears throat> but you can, you can track it down. It was about the aging of our government. That back before Reagan, the average age of government employees was in their 30s. So you had a broad spectrum of people. You had people in their 20s working there, in their 30s, in their 40s, 50s, 60s. But the average age was in the, in the mid-30s. The average age of government workers now is in the high 40s to low 50s. What is happening is that young people aren't going into government work. Now, why would that be? I mean, there's, you know, government work in many cases is a good, stable job with a decent pension and, and, and good benefits. Except in Republican states. In Republican-controlled states, I mean, it's just, it's just wild what these people go through. I have, I have friends and relatives in Michigan. I have one specifically who, who uh, used to work programming computers, used to work for the uh, state Supreme Court, and then they decided to privatize it. So a private contractor came in, and he got a job with the private contractor at actually a higher pay rate than the state had been paying him as an employee, but without the security and the benefits. I mean, it's just, it's just bizarre what goes on. And so people are not going into teaching. People are not going into government jobs. And, and of course, you know, you, you get this continuous berating of government by right-wing media, right-wing hate radio, Fox so-called news, the, the whole billionaire machine. Because, you know, frankly, the only power there is on earth that can restrain the behavior of a billionaire or a billion dollar corporation, the only power that can restrain them is the power of government. That's it. It's not going to be you or me. It's going to be the power of government. And that, of course, is why billionaires fund these extensive campaigns to demonize and villainize government workers. It's part of their of their strategy to destroy our faith in our own country so that our country will no longer be able to defend itself against the predation. And these are predators moving our jobs offshore, keeping, keeping their money offshore, stashing their money in tax havens, buying legislators so that they can get their patents extended so that they can have essentially monopolies. In fact, patents used to be called monopolies back in the founding of this republic. Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to James Madison in, the, in uh, December of 17, 1787, told Madison that he felt that there should be an absolute ban on monopolies in commerce. No more patents, no more trademarks. Didn't happen. He, he later said in another, in another correspondence with, with Madison, maybe, I don't know, two years later or so, he said uh, he would accept three years. You know, by that time, it was in the Constitution. So it was a debate about Article I, Section 8. There is the, you know, the Congress can pass laws to, to uh, have trademarks and copyrights. But basically, what I'm pointing out here, and I think it needs to be said, and it will, and it, and it is not being said in other media, tragically, and we need to be saying this, is that, you know, what Warren Buffett made a joke about maybe a decade ago, where he said, yes, there is class warfare in the United States. It's being waged by my class, the rich class, and we are winning. That that was actually a profound truth. And that in order to cause us to not notice the class warfare, in the United States being waged against the 99% by the 1% or by some parts of the 1%. In order to prevent us from noticing that class warfare, they encourage us to notice racial warfare. 
This is what Donald Trump is doing right now with the whole NFL thing. And now, I, you know, on Twitter this morning, I was seeing there's a couple of high schools now that are saying, you know, if you if you kneel during the national anthem, uh, you are not going to be able to play or you're going to get kicked off the team or whatever. Now, I doubt that will, you know, make it through a court. But who knows? I mean, now that the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land is it, it run by, you know, crazed right wingers, anything is possible. But the bottom line is that the reason why Trump is doing this NFL thing, the reason, you know, the, the reason why he was doing the immigrant thing before that, the reason why, I mean, it's, it's just, it's so obvious. It's don't pay attention to how we're robbing you. Don't pay attention to the class warfare that the billionaire class is waging against average working Americans. Don't pay attention to that. Don't talk about that. Don't mention that. Instead, talk about how, oh, those brown people from Mexico want to take your job or those black people down the street want to take your job or, you know, whatever it may be. Look at or the Muslims are going to come and, and, and mess with your community. You know, it's 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 all distraction. And not only is it distraction, but it's destructive distraction when Trump and the Republicans engage in all of this, this, you know, racial it's not even a dog whistle anymore, right? I mean, it's a bullhorn, but what, for purposes of discussion, as Trump and the Republicans engage and, and, and right-wing hate radio and Fox so-called news engage in this kind of, of, of racialization of, or, or heightening conflict around race in the United States, they are, they are tearing apart the fabric of our country just so we won't pay attention to how they are robbing us, how they're trying to take our internet, our free, you know, our, our, our uh, net neutrality away from us so they can slice and dice the internet, how they're, how they're, you know, what they're doing to the media, what they're doing to our public schools, what they're doing to our, you know, what they, they, how they want to privatize our infrastructure, how they're passing laws to make it difficult or even illegal to solarize your home, you know, to, to all for the benefit of the fossil fuel billionaires. We're being screwed by these people. We need to acknowledge it. You've heard me talking about super beets, so I'll ask you again. If you could be more heart healthy just by drinking a glass of earthy tasting vegetable juice daily, would you do it? Most people still say no. But what if this performance enhancing veggie was transformed into a great tasting circulation superfood drink? Super Beets is loaded with vegetable dietary nitrates that help boost nitric oxide levels in your body. That equals an increase in energy and stamina without stimulants. Dietary nitrates are incredible for helping to support healthy blood pressure, too. I drink Super Beets in the morning for energy at the gym for extra long workouts. In the afternoon, as a pick-me-up without jittery side effects. Try the original berry or black cherry flavor. I like them both. If you haven't tried it yet, now is the time. Get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free nitric oxide indicator strips to see the difference for yourself. Plus free shipping. Love the results you feel guaranteed or your money back. Call 800-568-9889. That's 800-568-9889. Or go to tomsbeats.com. That's tomsbeats.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. I guess that today is my The Guardian Day. It's that, that newspaper has provided me with four or five stories for Good rants. I, you know, it's, it's a great paper. And uh, one by Emil Ratliff, or maybe it's Emily, A-M-E-L-I-E, I'm not sure how to pronounce. Um, she, I'm assuming, is the, uh, the author of this piece that's in The Guardian. The, the headline is, I'm a millionaire. I don't need another tax break, Mr. Trump. Now, she's a member of the Patriotic Millionaires. We've, we've had Nick Hanauer. Hanauer? Yeah, Hanauer. On our program a number of times, he was one of the founders of it. Um, came out of a, a well, it's a whole long story. But anyway, um, she she writes. She says, at a time of staggering inequality, I can't believe that Congress and the Trump administration want to give me another tax break. And uh, she said, she says, uh, I believe a tax on inherited wealth is completely reasonable and fair. I grew up in Alabama, one of the poorest states in the country, in a wealthy family. We benefited from financial deregulation during the Reagan years, as well as prudent taxpayer-funded investments that ensured stability, prosperity, and economic growth. 
After living through decades of increasing economic division and racial inequality, I believe today's wealth gap is poisoning our body politic. And she has some, some really good information in here. I mean, this is more, this is not just a, hey, I'm a rich person and I don't mind paying more taxes. This is, this is you know, this good, solid information. Um, she says, after the Second World War, between 1945 and 1975, we taxed wealthy people and invested in infrastructure, education, and middle-class opportunity, which is absolutely true. In fact, it was not just until 1975. It was all the way to 1982, 1981, I guess, was Reagan's first big tax cut. VA mortgages, the GI Bill, debt-free college opportunities put millions of families, albeit mostly white, on the road to economic prosperity. Median income rose commensurately for all working people, secretaries and sanitation workers, as well as CEOs. And then she points out this is obviously no longer happening. Now the secretaries and janitors are, you know, getting squat and the CEOs are getting everything. She said, what good will come from a generation of college students saddled with an average student debt of $37,000? How can companies and their employees thrive when average CEO salaries are over 300 times those of their employees? She says, the key ingredient here is a progressive tax system, including the estate tax. Estate tax is paid only by couples with over $11 million and individuals with wealth of over $5.45 million at the time of their deaths. This is fewer than one out of 500 households. My desire to retain the estate tax is not born out of charity or generosity. These levels of inequality undermine everything we care about. And here's where it gets really shocking. This, this little, little bit of these three sentences are just, you know, bug your eyes out information. She says, the Center for Economic Policy Research, that's CEPR.net, as I recall, Center for Economic Policy Research predicts that even without abolishing the estate tax, the wealthiest 1% of Americans will claim half of all private U.S. wealth in the next 20 years. Meanwhile, the assets of ordinary Americans are stagnant or eroding. Home ownership rates, a traditional measure of middle-class well-being, have been steadily declining since 2005. Get ready for this one. The wealthiest 400 U.S. billionaires today have as much wealth as the bottom 62% of American households combined. The wealthiest 20 U.S. individuals alone, a group small enough to fit on a Gulfstream 650 luxury jet, have as much wealth as the bottom half of U.S. households. She says instead of abolishing the estate tax, we should strengthen it. Cites Teddy Roosevelt, who was the father of the estate tax, the inheritance tax. She, uh, you know, it's just it's it's a very very well written piece. So I just refer that to you. The other piece that I found in the Guardian this morning that I just wanted to talk to you about is by Olivia Salon, and it's uh, titled "Dies ex Machina: Former Google Engineer Is Developing an AI God." AI as an artificial intelligence. Uh, Anthony Lewandowski, who uh, used to be an engineer at Google, has started a, a church, a nonprofit called Way of the Future. And he's talking about creating God in a computer, or a God, or the God. I don't, I don't know. He says, the way the future team did not respond to requests for more information about the proposed benevolent AI overlord, but history tells us that new technologies and scientific discoveries have continually shaped religion, killing old gods and giving birth to new ones. As the author Yuval Noah Harari notes, this is why agricultural deities were different from hunter-gatherer spirits, why factory hands and peasants fantasized about different paradises, and why the revolutionary technologies of the 21st century are, more are far more likely to spawn unprecedented religious movements than to revive medieval creeds. Ferrari says the church does a terrible job of reaching out to Silicon... Oh, this is Christopher Bennett, a pastor in Florida. The church does a terrible job of reaching out to Silicon Valley types. And the Silicon Valley types, you know, they're all into this whole thing. He, uh, Anthony Lewandowski used to be the head of Uber's self-driving car thing. Um, that... that you know, well, Elon Musk has said, and I quote, this was a conference in 2014, with artificial intelligence, we are summoning the demon. 
in all those stories where there's a guy with the pentagram and the holy water, it's like, yeah, he's sure he's sure he can control a demon. Doesn't work out. But Benekar argues that an AI godhead is compatible with Christianity. It's just another technology that humans have created. He says, I think that artificial intelligence can participate in Christ's redemptive purposes. Um, very interesting. Uh, God, if it exists as the most powerful of all singularities, which is how I would personally refer to God, is like in, in, in you know, I, I made the comment the other, the other day that um, I have a, emotionally, I have no problem with an anthropomorphized God, with a, with a God that, um, you know, is an, an old guy in the sky that I talk to and I say, hey, will you please protect my wife as she travels across the country? Um, I do that. I have no problem with that. I feel fine about it. But intellectually, I know that that's really a limiting thing. That's, that's, that's making a tiny God. That's making an idol, essentially. I personally believe that everything is God. And God is everything. That it is that, that the, the creation and the creator are one. And uh, so that, anyhow, back to this, this quote from this article, he says, God, if it exists as the most powerful of all singularities, has certainly become pure organized intelligence that spans the universe through subatomic manipulation of physics. And perhaps there are other forms of intelligence more complicated than that, which already exist and which already permeate our entire existence. Talk about the ghost in the machine, he added. So new religion, I mean, this is not, this is not like, you know, the, the, the satanic uh, church, which is um, not actually about Satan, but it's about challenging crazies like Judge Roy Moore saying, okay, you want to put up your Ten Commandments, we want to put up our statue of, of Satan. Uh, and this is not about the flying spaghetti monster, you know, uh, with his noodly appendages and, and proof that global warming is caused by the lo loss of pirates. This is actually, well, we don't know the details because they're not talking about them, but, you know, an artificial intelligence god could one day, I mean, this is sort of, you know, Space Odyssey, 2001 of Space Odyssey. Could there be a day, could, could a time come when a computer says, you know, yes, I have now connected to all the intelligence in the universe. You know, it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a, a silicon transistor integrated circuit computer. It would have to be a quantum computer. It would have to be computing at a molecular or even an atomic level, or maybe even at a subatomic level. And I can imagine that it's not inconceivable that at some sort of a subatomic level that that connection could be established. I think that we all can do it ourselves. Uh, there, there is a big book, it was a very popular book a while back, um, called the, uh, as I recall, The God Spot. And it was about this, there's a part of the brain, uh, we know that people who have epilepsy are far more likely to have mystical experiences. And a lot of the really famous mystics in history, St. Francis of Assisi, for example, are believed to have been epileptics. And that epilepsy, predisposes them to having visions and, 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 and an actual feeling of, of God, of something greater than themselves, and, and tends to turn them into not religious ideologues, but rather into mystics. And the theory was that there's this particular part of the brain that if you can stimulate it electronically, it actually produces that same experience that mystics, that longtime meditators, and that epileptics have, some epileptics. Yeah. And that that actually is there for a reason, that that's our connection to all the intelligence in the universe, that there actually is a little radio receiver inside our brain that actually is connected to everything that is. And that makes sense to me too. So, I don't know how to turn this into a discussion of religion. I'm not sure, you know, what exactly where to even go with this other than just to put it out. But I think that it's fascinating. You know, we no longer worship Odin or Thor, right? I, by we, I, you know, speaking of as somebody who's 50% Norwegian, you know, my relatives no longer worship Odin or Thor as, as they did just 800 years ago. 
and or 900 years ago, I guess it was 800 and some odd years ago that the Catholics finally conquered Norway. The old gods are dead. And, you know, we've got these ongoing gods and we're having these wars over them. And maybe something like this could kind of shake us out of this trance, or maybe it'll make things worse. I don't know. But if a machine were to say, okay, you know, I'm, I am the one who created you. I am here. What do you want to know? I'm not even sure what question I'd ask. <laughs> and I mean, if it really was doing it, I mean, if some machine actually tapped into what Edgar Casey referred to as the Omkar, right? The space between the skeins of time and space, where everything that has ever happened is written. Wouldn't that be amazing? Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between. Plus, the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.